My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. If you read the end of chapter 20, it really does seem like uh, John kind of brings things to a close at the end of chapter 20. And then all of a sudden we have 21, and it seems like a second ending. Well, you know, if it was a later edition, some people think it was added later on. If it was a later edition, it was added very, very early because there is no known manuscript anywhere that doesn't contain John 21. So it was there almost from the very beginning. But even if it was an addendum, as some have suggested, um, I think it's important to understand that that does not make it less truthful or less authoritative. Because John has just said at the end of chapter 20, Jesus did many miraculous signs and wonders uh, that are not contained in this record. It may be that at some point in the years following the original writing, God moved on John's heart to record it because, well, maybe there was a need in the community and and, uh, this story addressed that particular need. Or perhaps God just knew that there would be many, many men and women down through the centuries who would need to know this story. And so God moved on John's heart to record it, to make sure that no one missed this part of the story. Because you see, one of the things that John 21 gives us is the rest of the story in regards to one of the most important events in the whole gospel. The epic failure of Peter when he denied Jesus three times in the courtyard. You may remember a couple of months ago, two or three months ago, when we were in John 13, I did a message on Judas and Peter. Uh, we, We tend to remember those two very, very differently. But the truth of the matter is their stories are quite the same. Uh, They both walked with Jesus for three years. They both knew Jesus and were known by Jesus intimately. Jesus warned both of them that they would fail terribly. Both of them failed. Peter's denial is just as bad as Judas's betrayal when you think about it. In both cases, these men radically failed the one that they had followed and known for three years. Both of them felt terrible about it. The gospel record says that that Peter wept bitterly when he heard that cock crowing after the third denial. He wept bitterly. But no less than Judas, because the gospel record also tells us that Judas was filled with remorse He actually goes back to the Pharisees, tries to give them the money back, says, I've made a terrible mistake. And yet, that's where the two stories depart. Because one of them ends tragically when Judas hangs himself from a tree in the potter's field. 
But Peter, on the other hand, turns out to be one of the greatest leaders of the early church, one of the two greatest leaders of the early church. So we ask ourselves, what, what, what was the difference? Uh, what, what made the difference? Why did Judas's failure end in such a tragic way, while Peter's failure seemed to result in even greater faithfulness and influence? Two very similar stories, but two radically different outcomes. Well, what we know for sure about Judas is that when he realized what he had done, he went to the Pharisees. He turned to the Pharisees. And you may remember what they said to him. In essence, they said to him, this is not our business. Uh, The truth of the matter is they said, buddy, you're on your own. We, We don't really care that you think you made a mistake. We got what we wanted from you, and we don't need you anymore. Peter, on the other hand, in his humility, turned to the disciples. Peter stayed with his friends, stayed close to them. He was there with them on Sunday morning when the women returned from the tomb and said, his body is gone. He was there with them when Jesus appeared that same evening in the room in the house where they were staying. He was there with them a week later when Jesus appeared again and invited Thomas to touch his wounds to prove that he really was raised from the dead. Peter was there in in both of those cases. Peter was always there with the disciples. You see, Judas couldn't come to grips with his failure. And in his failure, isolated himself from his true friends. Peter, on the other hand, in his brokenness, pressed in, stayed connected to his friends. And that's what kept him from going under. That's what kept him from giving up. That's what enabled Peter to survive. But there is a difference between not going under and rising above. There is a difference between not giving up and becoming an overcomer. There's a difference between just surviving and thriving. And that's the rest of the story. The rest of the story tells the difference. Let's just read it together in John 21. I'm only going to read through verse 19, though the, the entire section is important, but we're going to focus just on the first 19 verses. After, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. 
Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say this, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the full net, the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you, were dressed, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. I want you to try to imagine for a moment. Um, Try to put yourselves in, in Peter's shoes. Try to imagine for a moment what it must have been like for Peter in those days immediately following the resurrection. On the one hand, Jesus was alive. And everyone who had seen him knew that Jesus was absolutely who he said he was. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was the Messiah. But on the other hand, Peter knew that now, for sure, without question, Peter knew that the man that he had denied three times was the Son of God. The Messiah. You see how everyone could be excited and, and certainly Peter could be excited, but at the same time, there must have been something painful in that realization. And can you imagine the regret, uh, the, uh, the, the guilt and the shame that must have haunted Peter as he thought about his failure in the courtyard? I mean, can you imagine the thoughts that must have run through Peter's mind as he wondered what it would be like if he ever stood face to face with Jesus alone. Can you imagine what he must have felt as he resigned himself to what he must have concluded about his future? He would never be the rock again. He had 
deny Jesus before a little girl, for goodness sake? How could he ever be known as the rock after that? I mean, Jesus had said to him, I'm going to build my church on faith like yours, Peter. But now that was gone. And can you imagine all that he must have been going through in those days following the resurrection? It's not surprising in light of that, 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 that Peter would come to this place where he would announce to his friends, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Because you see, Peter was a fisherman long before he was a follower of Jesus. And you know, when we fail, we have this tendency to go back to what we know, to go back to what is familiar. And that's where Peter was heading. He was going back to what he knew. The other disciples who were from Galilee, they became known as the Galilee Seven because there were seven of them that grew up in this land, this beautiful land that surrounds the Sea of Galilee. And, and so they went with him, and that's where, they were, that's where they were now. They were on the boats. They were with the nets. They could smell the salt water and the, the fish in the air. This is the world that they knew. This was the place where Peter was absolutely certain he could survive. He knew he could survive here. They had fished all night, but hadn't caught a thing. And then the sun began to break over the horizon, and apparently in the Sea of Galilee, the best time to catch fish is at night. So as the sun came up, so did the prospects of a great haul disappear. They were about to give up when a man shouted at them from the, the beach and said, why don't you try throwing the net on the other side? Well, they had nothing to lose, so they threw it over. And all of a sudden, their net was bursting with fish. More fish than they could, almost more fish than they could bring to the surface. And that's when John, the, the smartest one of the bunch, realized it's the Lord. Do you remember that a very similar thing happened? At the beginning, when Jesus first called them to follow them, the same thing had happened that someone on the boat, someone on the shore, a carpenter for goodness sake, had the gall to tell these fishermen how to fish. Only when they did what he said, they, they caught more than they knew what to do with. It happens again now. And John immediately recognizes it's the Lord. It's the Lord. But before he could even get the words out of his mouth, Peter has already jumped in the water. Now, you, you might wonder why Peter would do something like that, except that, it, well, it's just Peter. I mean, that's what Peter always did, right? Peter was the impulsive one, the, the spontaneous one. Peter rarely thought about what he was going to do. He just did it. So Peter leaps into the ocean. Maybe Peter is thinking, if I, if I do something extravagant, maybe Jesus will know how sorry I really am. So Peter dives into the water with his clothes on, swims to the shore. And when he and the others arrive there, they discover that Jesus has already made breakfast for them. Fish are already there cooking on a fire. But then Jesus says, why don't you bring some of your fish and let's add them to mine and we'll, we'll have a little early morning feast here on the beach. Peter jumped into the boat by himself, 
single-handedly grabbed the, the net and dragged it on to the shore. Now, some people wonder why John would, would, would know that there was 153 uh, the fact that he gives such a, a specific number, 153, a lot of people say, well, that must be symbolic. I mean, surely that has some special meaning, but, you know, I may be wrong. But I think people that wonder why he would do that, who think that's an odd thing for John to do, just don't understand fishermen. Uh, I called my dad a few weeks ago. My dad is 76 years old. And every year, he and three of his best friends take an annual fishing trip down to Florida. And he had just come back from that trip. He's the youngest of the bunch, by the way. Um, and they had just come back from this trip. And so I called him. I said, hey, Dad, how, how'd the trip go? He said, well, over two days, we caught 289 fish. And I guarantee you, they counted every one. That's exactly how many they caught. The fact that Peter, I mean, that John says it's 103 fish, 53 fish, just means they're fishermen. Uh, they know what they've caught. But that's not the rest of the story. Um, the rest of the story takes place after breakfast. When Jesus pulls Peter aside, and suddenly Peter finds himself in the very position that he has been dreading for weeks. He is now standing face to face with Jesus, face to face with Jesus. Now, to fully understand what's happening here, there's a little detail here that, that you would miss unless you know Greek, but it's really important. It's a minor detail in the telling of the story, but it has huge meaning for what's actually taking place here. John says, again, giving very specific detail that Jesus had cooked the fish over a charcoal fire. I think in the NIV it says over a fire of burning coals. In the Greek, it's one single word. But it's one word for a very specific kind of fire, a fire made of burning coals. Now, the, this particular Greek word is only found one other place in the entire Bible. Nowhere else do you find this Greek word anywhere else in the biblical record. Anybody want to guess where the other one was? Nope, not Isaiah. It's in the New Testament. Nope. Y'all want to keep guessing? It was in the courtyard on the night of Jesus' trial when Peter warmed himself by a fire of burning coals just before he denied Jesus three times. It's the only other place in Scripture we find that word. You see what Jesus has done? Jesus has just set the stage to remind Peter of the lowest point in his life. He has just set the stage so that Peter will remember everything that took place on that night that, that he failed at Jesus with his denials. I mean, all of the guilt and the shame and the regret must have come flooding in. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why would Jesus do uh, such a thing? I mean, why would Jesus set the stage to remind Peter of what, was, what he did? I mean, is this the, the, the greatest I told you so in history? That's one way to look at it. 
But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it has to do with the true nature of forgiveness and reconciliation. The true nature of forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, forgiveness is not just turning your head and looking the other way. Forgiveness is not just a a nervous smile as you say, don't worry about it, it's okay. It just doesn't matter. True forgiveness is a costly thing. It's a painful thing. Because when we truly forgive someone who has wronged us, what we're saying is, I will bear the cost of your decision, of your action. I, I will bear, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to keep you in debt to me for the rest of your life. I'm going to let you go. But that means I have to bear the pain of what you did for me. That's what true forgiveness involves. And here's what, Peter, here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, I've built this fire, reconstructing that moment of your greatest failure to let you know I know exactly what happened. I know exactly where it happened, I know when it happened, and I know how it happened. I know everything that happened on that night, and I still forgive you. And true reconciliation requires the one who's being forgiven to take ownership, to say, I'm not going to blame anybody else, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to give excuses What I did was wrong. Jesus made that fire and set that stage so carefully because he wanted Jesus, he wanted Peter to know that he knew all about the events of that night. But he also made it because he knew that if Peter was going to truly be forgiven and set free, restored, it had to be done in the full light of his failure. Can't cover it up. Can't pretend it didn't happen. It's got to be done in the full light of your failure. And it's in that context that Jesus says these words. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, I can tell you that having researched this passage, there are all kinds of theories on exactly what Jesus meant when he said, do you love me more than these? Because John doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus meant. And it's obvious that it could mean a lot of different things. I mean, it could mean that Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? That doesn't seem real plausible because, I mean, Jesus was constantly sending the message that if you love God, you're also going to... It doesn't seem like Jesus would would put himself in competition with the other disciples. Uh, Some people say that Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love this boat and the net and the life of a fisherman? Now, I think that's, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that Peter, having just gone back to what was familiar going back to what he was comfortable with, that Jesus might be challenging him saying, Peter, I need to know that you love me more than you love this life. I need to know that you love me more than you love the familiarity and comfort of where you find security. I think that's possible. But there's a third possibility. It may be that Jesus was saying, Peter... 
Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Do you love me more than these love me? Now, again, at first glance, you'd say, well, that, that doesn't seem right either. I mean, why, why would Jesus ask such a thing? Why would Jesus put Peter in a competitive position to the other disciples? It really doesn't make sense until you remember that the night before Jesus was betrayed, or night before Jesus was crucified, when they were all together in the upper room, Jesus had said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Do you remember what Peter said? What Peter said was, Lord, I will never fail you. He then goes on to say, all of these others may turn away because of you, but I will never turn away. See, I think what Jesus was really saying here was this. Peter, we still there? You still convinced that your love is greater and stronger than everyone else's? You still filled with self-confidence that leads you to a place of pride that would declare that you will never fail though everyone else in the world may? Is that where you still are? Peter responds, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. For one of the first times in his life, Peter doesn't ramble. For one of the first times in his life, Peter doesn't go on and on and on. He simply says, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't compare himself to others. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't make excuses. He simply says, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asked him a second time, do you love me? And again, Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then a third time, do you love me? John says that Peter was hurt when Jesus said the third time, do you love me? Once again, his epic failure is brought into the light. But Jesus' intent here was not to hurt. Do you see what he's done? Jesus has actually given Peter an opportunity to replace his three denials with three confessions of his love. Jesus has recreated this scene so that he could go back to the very moment of his failure and allow him to profess with his mouth, I love you, one for each denial around the fire. And it is that which brings Peter to a place where he can be not just forgiven, but restored. Not just forgiven, but reinstated. Not just forgiven, but recommissioned as an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see how powerful this is? I mean, see, maybe I can understand God's forgiveness. But how do I escape the reality of what failure reveals about me as a man? How do I escape that reality? I mean, how could God ever trust me again? How could God ever believe in me again? 
How can God ever use me again? Those had to be the questions that were were running through Peter's heart. And yet, in that moment, Jesus has just said, Peter, if you love me, I've got work for you. Peter, if you love me, I've got something for you to do. In, In essence, Jesus was saying, Peter, it is time to move on. Don't let this event define your whole life. Don't get stuck here. It's time to move on. The the, the need out there is too great. And my call on your life is, is too important for you to get stuck here. Don't get stuck here. Don't waste one more minute consumed with your own failure. All I want to know is this. Will you be consumed with me instead? Will you be consumed with me? Do you love me? That's all I need to know. Do you love me? Now, the truth is, even this is not the full rest of the story. Peter will go on in the book of Acts to be filled with God's Spirit. And Peter will stand under the power of the Holy Spirit and preach a very simple message And 3,000 souls will be saved. Peter will go on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter will go on to write two letters that will become part of the New Testament. And it's in one of those letters that Peter addresses other leaders. He speaks to other elders. Elders in those days would have been essentially pastors. And Peter writes to them in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter 1. Listen to what he says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in his glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And then listen to what Peter says to the young men. Listen to what he says. The the, the great shepherd that has led the flock of Jesus Listen to what he says to the young men. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. I want to tell you, those are the words of a man transformed by forgiveness and restoration. Those are the words of a a man who is now being used by God to shepherd shepherds, who is now being used by God to show others how to feed the Lord's sheep. Those are the words of a man who's come to know, come to understand at a deep level that the thing that matters most in the end is not your performance, it's not your strength, it's not your genius, 
It's how you answer that one simple question. Do you love me? Do you love me? What if you were to find yourself today standing face to face with Jesus like Peter did on the beach? What if Jesus were to look into your eyes and you were able to look into his eyes and you heard him ask the question, do you love me? Do you love me? I'm reminded of a quote by Amy Carmichael. She says, God wants lovers. Oh, how tepid is the love of so many who call themselves by his name. How tepid is our own, my own, in comparison with the lava fires of his eternal love. I pray that you may be an ardent lover, the kind of lover who sets others on fire. What if Jesus were standing before you right now and he said to you, do you love me? Do you love me? If you do, the need out there is great. And there is no longer any need for you to be defined by your past. I am ready to give you a future and a hope. And I will give you everything you need to do what I've called you to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out and to lead us in a, a final song. Let me ask the, the, the altar team to come and prepare the elements. And as they're coming, um, let me just ask you, if you will, to reflect on that question for a moment. Would you dare to let Jesus actually speak those words through his Holy Spirit to your spirit? How would you respond today? I want you to know these altars are open. If you feel the need to come up and just kneel and declare your love for him, feel free to do that. If you, if you have a need this morning and you need someone to stand with you in prayer, please come. There will be those who are ready to pray with you. If you need today to come to a place of salvation, if you need to acknowledge that you have spent your whole life putting your trust in yourself, depending on yourself to make your way. And you now know that you need desperately the power of God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to empower you for a life of ministry to others. Feel free to come and kneel at these altars. You may also want to come and receive Holy Communion. And as you do, come confessing your sin. Take a piece of this bread which represents the body of our Lord Jesus. Dip it into the juice, which represents his shed blood. And would you celebrate today the forgiveness and the restoration that is available to you right now, right now where you sit. Can we all stand and let's just begin to respond as the Lord leads you to respond.